Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again this week by uh, Alec Bianco and Katerina Kern. And we are picking up again with Ovid's Metamorphosis. How are y'all doing this week? Doing well, thanks. Pretty good. And this is just another another normal story of things changing into other things, right, guys? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super normal. Yeah, good, good pick on this one. Brandon? There's nothing off-putting about this story at all. <laughs> yes. Yeah. For those of you reading along at home, if you were wondering what in the world was Brandon thinking, um, Alec and Katerina are right there with you. And Brandon was thinking, I haven't read Ovid yet, so I didn't look that closely at what the story was about when I chose it this time around. <laughs> um, I was a little more careful. And we're my, from I, it. Yes, <laughs> in my choices of, of Ovid. So let's just put it right out here. This is a story that's basically about all about incest. So if you want to turn it off now because you have younger people in the car, then you should do so. <laughs> Otherwise, let's jump in. First thoughts, Alec, Katerina? I got it. Okay. All right. Alec <laughs> gave me a little eyebrow raise, so I think that means this is to me. Um <laughs> I I think he I think he intentionally made me go first on this one because the first thoughts are just so bizarre with this. I think probably Alec was avoiding. I love that at the beginning, and this was surprising to me, that right at the beginning, Ovid says, I speak of terrible things. Don't believe what I'm going to tell you. Um, And I loved coming back to that opening multiple times throughout the reading to see, because he gives you different audience, different um, responses that the audience could have. And as I was reading through, I was thinking, oh, like, how would I relate to this in his different categories of audience? So I really found that fascinating. how he said, like, don't believe what I'm going to tell you, but if you are going to believe, then also believe in the punishment. And mm. um, then he brings up this idea of nature. And that is a theme that's interwoven throughout that I thought was really interesting. I mean, we see that all throughout the whole metamorphosis, but that he brought that up right at the beginning of the introduction. So I felt like he just laid everything out, but left so many open questions that okay. it's a really useful framework to use as I read through the text. Yeah, that struck me at the beginning, too. He even says, fathers and daughters from my song, Retire. Like he's right mm-hmm. up front. Do y'all don't want to hear this story. Yeah. Um, Which, as a daughter, I, was great to hear. I loved that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're fathers, so there's that, too. Um, had it been Oedipus, oh, I, would have made, I would have made Alec go first, but it's better that you go first this time around. So We right, already covered fair, Oedipus fair. With, with, in, on previous episodes. Alec, what about you? First thoughts. Well, my first thought is I want to dig in immediately because there's something really fascinating in this story. So obviously the setting here is Mira is in love with her father, Kaniras. But I I love this sort of Homeric simile that Ovid gives us uh, to describe what she's feeling so around line we'll start at 401 at midnight sleep relaxes cares and bodies but Kaniras's virgin cannot sleep she's gnawed by untamed fire and resumes her frenzied prayers now she despairs now hopes racked by both shame and lust she vacillates as when an axe blade wounds a giant trunk and just one blow remains nobody knows where it might fall and all around there's fears, 
There's fear, like this, her mind, reeling from varied wounds, fitfully sways now here, now there, careening both ways at once. It's so beautiful. And this tradition of the, I mean, we call it Homeric simile for a reason. He, mm-hmm. you know, starts it and ends it basically. But <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in those. It's not, it's not just a simple comparison. I think that we can actually like dig into that and and see see some. I I suppose the thing that that struck me about it was the part as when an axe blade wounds a giant trunk and just one blow remains. So I wonder. So what does that mean for for her? Like she, it sounds like he's saying, Ovid's saying that Mira is in this position now where there's just one blow left for mm-hmm. the decision to be made. Just as the tree, yeah. you don't know where it's going to fall, but only one blow will make it fall. And in same with her. So what is that one final blow that she needs, I suppose, to get her to fall? Yeah, I think that, I think, he definitely is setting up that question there, and and what struck me is not only is it not only is it Homeric in in the uh, in the style, it's an, it, that epic simile, but in um, it mirrors what he does so often with characters in both of his epics, where he talks about them they were divided in their mind, right? That that that, that phrase is usually translated that way about which way to go about something. So that it's that internal wrestling that he presents for various characters throughout his epics too, and it's it's. So it's written both in his style and in the same kind of juxtaposition of uh, of choices, which I thought was interesting. I was also really struck by this, Alex. So I'm glad that you brought it up here at the beginning because I agree that there's everything to unpack here in this simile. Um, one of the things that initially struck me is I'm trying to wrestle through whether she turned into a Murtry because her nature was to turn into the Murtry, whether that was a natural consequence of her or whether it was somewhat arbitrary, whether she could have been potentially a flower, a blade of grass, what Mm -hmm. have you. Um, And this simile is the only time she's described. Now, it could be that it was not custom to describe a character, and that's true. So it's possible that, you know, there's no other description of her for that reason. But I wonder if it is a coincidence that the one thing we're told about her is that in this moment where she is about to kill her or attempt to kill herself, she's like a tree. And then, of course, she becomes a tree at the end. And we see this the way that my translation has worded it. I want to hear it in both of yours as well, because I don't know how much of it is intended to be a pun and how much of it is just my translation. So um, I'll read it my way, and then maybe you guys can read it in, I think we have three different translations, which is really helpful. Mine says, as a tall tree struck by the axe, the last blow remaining, uncertain how it will fall, causes fear on all sides. So her fickle mind swayed this way and that, her thought taking both directions, seeing no rest for or end to her passion, but death. And Alec, I know you already read yours, but do you mind reading it again? I'm particularly wondering about the relationship between her mind and her passions and whether it says uncertain how it will fall. Does it? I know you read it, but I, I missed that word. Can you read yours again? Yeah, it says nobody knows where it might fall. Okay. 
And then in the in the end, swayed this way and that. Can you read to the end where it talks about her death? Mm-hmm. As when an axe blade wounds a giant trunk and just one blow remains, nobody knows where it might fall, and all around there's fear. Like this, her mind, reeling from varied wounds, fitfully sways now here, now there, careening both ways at once. She finds no end or respite for love except for death. Mm. So I was really struck by how her character desires to do the right thing so deeply, even saying in her prayer, if this is sin, then stop me to the gods before she does it, which is fascinating. Um, And then, of course, at the end where she says, don't let me live or die because I might offend the living, I might offend the dead. Mm -hmm. So then she becomes a tree. So there is this piety to her and this desire to honor both the gods and the humans. And um, that's contrasted to this passion that she is maybe enslaved to, maybe not, I'm not sure. Um, But it seems like here Ovid is telling us that the problem is perhaps her mind that she has this fickle mind that swayed this way and that. Um, but I don't, I think obviously fall is meant as a pun there, right? Like we're uncertain of how she is going to fall. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious about her, her relationship with herself, her passions, her mind, and whether she's fated to this, whether the gods allowed it to happen because she calls out to them and stop me if this is a sin and they don't. But then Cupid says this isn't his fault. Um, what, yeah, what is the relationship of the fates and gods and all of this? And what can we hold her culpable for? All of these questions are kind of coming out of this section for me. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I see all of that as well. Go ahead, Brandon. No, I, was, I think I think we've kind of landed on this point. That this epic simile is kind of drawing our attention to the right questions, right? Because uh, I see the same thing. She's 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 debating, first of all, whether it's actually um sinful right she says a sin but then is it really a sin all the other animals can do this like is man just made these own laws for himself um she's she's talking herself into it she's talking herself out of it um all throughout and then and then the prayers obviously follow that same pattern where she's she's asking for respite and then um uh and relief release from it um she does seem like someone who this is this passion that she at times knows is wrong. Um, and it's times looking for help to get out of, but then at times is trying to excuse going forward with it. Um, and, and it appears to me that the, the blow ends up being the nurse, right? That's the nurse ends up being the final blow, um, that pushes her one way, but that's, we can get into that in a minute, but, um, so I, I find this to be kind of a, a pretty crucial simile or section to to the piece, to actually this particular story in the, in book ten. So. Yeah, I think that's right. I I think I can. I almost want to summarize this story with the word options. So. What I mean is this the simile is pretty explicit, at least in the in her mind. So going back to your point, Katerina. So what's going on in Mira's mind? And it seems to me this the simile is making it clear that she believes there's two options. 
and she's been wrestling with the 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 option of do I love him or do I not love him? And like you were saying, Brandon, and she's going back and forth. Is it a sin? Is it not a sin? Well, all these other people do it and these animals do it. Oh, I wish I were born there, right? And so she's going back and forth between these two options. And then she gets to this point and it says, after, after the, the simile, she finds no end or respite for love except for death. She opts for death and stands to slip a noose mm-hmm. around her neck. So she makes this decision, which she believes there's only two options here. And I think that's really fascinating because for us, the reader, the most obvious choice would be, well, work through it and get over it. How (laughs) that might happen, I don't know. But right, stop loving your dad. I don't know what you need to do to figure that out. Pray more, worship more, move off. Don't live in your dad's house. Marry one of these hundred suitors, right? right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the... But for her, that that cannot possibly be the option, right? She loves her father. She can't get over it. And so she opts for death. And I think, going back to what you, you brought up, Katarina, is this story is about, at least I see this story of, oh, there's only two options. There's only two options. There's only two options. And then at the very end, she finally realizes there's not only two options. And, they, and then she asks the God for the third. She should have done that from the beginning, but she doesn't. And at the end, because she finally realizes that there is a third option and she asks the gods for that, that's why they grant her and she becomes the tree. Mm. Getting neither life nor death. And she doesn't even know exactly what that third option is there, right? She just asked for a third option to not live in, in as something despised and also not to, as Katarina pointed out, offend the dead. By being right, by going to the but her, her, but her mind is finally open to the idea that there is a third yeah. option. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious about that. That's so interesting. Um, especially this idea of living in life. And yes, she's got these two choices of loving her father or dying in her mind, but there's also these two choices of life and death. And I think they both run parallel to that. She's viewing life as loving her father. And we see that with the nurse, right? When she wants to kill herself and she says, oh, she, well, interestingly enough, the way she says she loves her father is to say, mother, you are happy in your husband, which is fascinating because she's stating a right relationship. She's observing the right nature of mankind, even in acknowledging that she loves him as well, which is, yeah, just fascinating that she doesn't state her sin. Um, And then the nurse says, live, possess your, and she did not dare say father. So she doesn't even say live, possess your father, but obviously that's the implication. And then she confirms her promise in the sight of heaven, but she was silent. So there's this idea of the spoken and the silent, and the sin is always the silent. Even when the nurse, who's the one that causes the sin, she is the catalyst because when Mira goes to actually sleep with her father, then she's going to leave. She She's so ashamed. She's going to try and run away. And the nurse kind of eggs her on. Um, so the nurse says, live and possess your father. And I'm just so intrigued at this idea that that life is, you know, love. Um, in her mind, obviously, it isn't actually. And this duality that that you've mentioned that they're constantly she's stuck in this concept of of this duality i mean there's there's a lot else to unpack there but 
I'm going to stop there for a second and continue thinking in my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because it's it, it appears for a moment that the final blow that's missing is her own right to choose to choose death to set up the noose to kill herself um and that gets interrupted and the final blow ends up being the nurse who keeps pushing her and pushing her to tell her what she wants to tell her the what's going on and then pushing her toward fulfilling it for whatever reason um and then even like you said when she's when she's about to chicken out at the very last minute the nurse is the one that pulls her into the to the bedchamber um it almost and i don't know how your lines read but it seemed like at that point the nurse is afraid that it's too late now i'm gonna get in trouble but maybe i'm just maybe i'm not reading that properly but um but yeah it's the nurse kind of goading her along all the way is is interesting but there's there's that mm-hmm. there's that moment where the blow might have gone the other way, and she might have she even asked forgiveness for killing herself in that moment as she's setting it up, um, because she, I guess in her mind she's viewing it as the lesser of the two impious crimes, right, to commit suicide than to than to to go into her father's bed, um, right, and somehow in go in moving towards death, which would be a corruption of life. She then falls further into a corruption of life when the mm. nurse says, possess your father, right? This idea of possessiveness with life. So I don't know. I've been I've been trying to understand the way Ovid is presenting this and the way the nurse talks about it here. I know this is going to sound like the most obvious question in the world. Like, how could you actually be asking this? Please no one be offended. I don't. <laughs> I, I'm, from the t- context of the story... I'm trying to understand what Mira's actual crime is and why it's wrong. I mean, obviously, she's sleeping with her father. That's a crime. But why is that wrong according to this story? Yeah, what caught me off guard about that was in her, when she's wrestling with, is this a sin? She mentions the animal kingdom, which like, okay, well, you're not an animal. So there's you know, there's a higher. Um, but then she mentions lands where this isn't, where this would be okay. And I don't know which land she's referring to, um, but uh, that that caught me off guard that there's there's lands where this wouldn't be considered impious or whatever, um, which we don't get in and any of the she... Greek and Roman stories. So it's certainly not their cultures that find that to be okay. Right. And even when she mentions that the animals do it, her reasoning when she says, Oh, like response to that. She doesn't say, but I am a higher creature than the animals. Mm -hmm. She says human concern has made malign laws and what nature allows jealous duty forbids. So that's where I'm trying to, to understand what is the role of nature? What does nature allow? Are these malign laws? Is her crime that she broke human laws? Do we have an Antigone on our hands? Or is her crime right. that she broke the laws of nature and offended the gods? I think that's an extremely important question. And I think often the questions that seem the most obvious are actually some of the best questions to ask. So I thank you for asking that question. What is the crime <laughs> here? It's important to understand what the crime is. I mean, what what what's happened? Who who's because crimes cause offense mm-hmm. and they cause problems. 
sometimes for other people, sometimes for yourself, sometimes to to the gods or God, whatever it might be. And so trying to understand this question, what what's happened here? Because the story, I, oh, it's fascinating, but disgusting at the same time, because there's this, this, uh, what's it called the the tradition that they're participating in where people don't sleep together and so men and women don't see each other that's what's happening right now oh, oh the, the feast of, of yeah the feast of series which is like demeter yes the that's series, right. yeah yeah series yearly rites uh nine whole nights they counted as crime to sleep with men or even touch them um and the king's wife is gone so kineras is you know ostensibly committing adultery here for a few nights and gets away with it mm-hmm. uh, because of whatever's happening here. I was just saying this based on the story. And then eventually it says, you know, what you guys talked about earlier where the nurse ha- makes it happen and then they continue to do it yeah. and they don't stop. Right. And then only finally after it doesn't say how many nights after a few nights, he want he's he wants to know who he's sleeping with um and then and then it's interesting because he immediately pulls out a sword to kill her till she runs mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. and so he he clearly sees it as an offense right so it doesn't answer the question but she he sees it an offense mm-hmm. so it, does he see it as an offense because of human custom or does he see it as an offense because it's uh, transgressing the laws of the gods i'm not sure my my only my last point on it would be and i to to help dig into your question would be comparing what she thinks her her mental processing here as she compares the other animals as she compares to peoples in these foreign lands um at the end i thought it was really fascinating that she didn't want to be alive because she would offend the people who are alive. Mm. But she also doesn't want to be dead because she would offend them as well. Mm-hmm. So that might help elucidate what this what the what the crime is here. Because she seems to realize after she's done it that it does carry on into the afterlife. Mm, good point. There's an eternal offense here that's not bound to her physical body or present time. Right, because even if it's only of her people group, right? If there are these other people groups, it's not a not a crime. I think in her, if I'm understand, I mean, if I understand kind of the afterlife situation properly for them, um, she would be among her own people in well, the Greeks would call Hades, and I guess what's it called for the Romans? I don't remember now, but uh, is it Elysian Fields or who's? That's a section of it, I believe. Okay. But she'd be among her own I mean, people, people, people who worship the same gods, right? She she would expect to be among other people who worship the same gods. So she, culturally, she'd be still bound to those that she's around in the underworld. Um, so if the culture finds this to be offensive, she'd be, be an offense to them. So she'd be an offense to the living and the dead of her of her culture, even if there are other lands where this is permissible. That's She's spending either life or death among a culture that finds it reprehensible yeah i wonder i wonder if she's 
concerned about the way that gods view it or the way that the humans view it. It seems at the beginning she does mention there are other humans who do this and mankind has made these malign laws, but she doesn't say whether she thinks that the gods are opposed to it, except that she prays to the gods to stop her, oppose my sin if it is sin. But then at the end, after she's committed the sin, that's where she says, if I'm offending the living or the dead. So I wonder if that's part of her transition is that at the beginning, she's concerned only about the human norms. And then at the end, she's more concerned about like eternal laws of the gods. But that's extrapolation. And it doesn't really say that. Well, I don't know if it is. I mean, consider that early on, Cupid makes sure that everybody knows he's not involved in this. Mm, Yes. And they blame one of the Furies, at least in the way it's right, right for that line of about Cupid. That's right. That's right. I'm going to put a poison yeah. dart. Well, she, uh, but she does. See, this is where I, this is where I wonder because she, as she wrestles, she does. After she questions whether it's a sin, she seems to acknowledge that it is. Uh, I unfortunately don't have nine line numbers, but it's probably I don't know thirty or forty lines later when she says. But stay I must to feed my famished sight, to talk, to kiss, and more if I might. More, impious maid, what more canst thou design? To make a monstrous mixture in thy line, and break all statutes human and divine. And that's... Oh, my, that's, he doesn't say that. To make a monstrous mixture in thy line? And where? And break all statutes that. human and divine, yeah. Canst thou be called to save thy wretched life, thy mother's rival, and thy father's wife? Uh, I mean, that's very enlightening. So I don't know what y'all says in that section. Then I'd be curious to hear, but it's, it's about, I don't know, roughly a page past, um, Mm -hmm. where she's asking about the other, I see it in mine. Mine just says, mine just says, do you realize how many names and ties you are throwing into confusion? Which had that I've, every time I've read that, I thought that it was talking about her identity and her father's identity and her mother's mm-hmm. but i i guess i should have known that that's talking about future children the the way that yours mm-hmm. describes them as monsters that she's creating monsters i think that's really enlightening because this is a trope that we see throughout i mean the second line it tells us that he would have been blessed if he had not born a child and mm-hmm. then she's finding life in her father who was the one who gave her life so there's this echo throughout, and that's, I mean, there's more instances of, um, yeah, life coming from life and, and the relationship between that. There's one section that I thought was interesting where she says a little bit when she starts to think, okay, I could do this, but here's why I'm not going to. In my translation, it's right above that. So you can tell me what yours says. It's when she's trying to convince herself, okay, no, don't do this. She says, forget in hopes, vanish. He is worth loving, but only as a father. I could lie with Cinerus if I were not Cinerus's already. Now he is not mine because he is already mine. And the harness of our relationship dams, oh, sorry, and the nearness of our relationship dams me. And then later she says, he is a good man and mindful of the moral law, which interestingly I've wondered this about the translations, if it's moral law or natural law in in mm-hmm. both how that she talks about nature before this, and now she's talking about the moral law. 
So there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm I'm wondering if it has to do with the nature of their relationship um, and possession. Again, the nurse says, possess your father. And she says, I could lie with him if I were not already his. He's He possesses her. So now she's trying to possess him. Maybe that has something mm. to do with it. Yeah, because right after that, she talks about even trying to move away to some foreign shore. I'm looking for the line where it's, you have, he's a moral, he's, he's, how do you say he's not a moral man? He's but a he's, good man. Yeah, so at mine, it's the end of this section. It's like line 355, maybe 354. She says, grant that you want it. The reality itself forbids it. So obviously lying with her father. Reality itself forbids it. He is a good man and mindful of the moral law. But oh, how I wish the same passion were in him. Yeah, the word there is pietas, that yours translates as good. Oh, okay. As good man. Yeah. So, so mine puts it, he honors piety and follows customs. Huh. But I think the word is pietas. Well, and the question that's, that's, that's the question that seems to be running throughout, right? About, about piety, which is unsurprising being it's a Roman author, but um she seems to be questioning whether it's whether it's just piety toward man's law or or the gods mm-hmm. but at the very least maybe it's not it's impiety toward her father and her mother yeah and, and... Go ahead. i was going to say get on that that piety point this almost half of this story is her speech or a great deal of it is this speech Mm -hmm. and compared to some of the other stories we've read and others that are in this collection it seems to me Ovid is making it very clear she knows what she's doing and this Mm -hmm. whole speech shows very clear i mean she's got she's covered every base she's covered the the natural law the god's law the piety customs like she's going through it all and realizing yeah every single time i'm doing something wrong every single time and she just cannot shake this 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 feeling that she has and i wonder if if that goes into this answer of this question rather of of what is what is the crime and i wonder if ovid is is showing us that part of it is her knowledge of it of her her ability to work through it and still choose the wrong decision, make the wrong decision. Mm. That's interesting because there's this repetition throughout of human senses, which is obviously a way that we know. And this echo of her being silent and not speaking her sin and the nurse being silent and the father not being not knowing, not being able to speak. He's blind. The father's blind every time he's with her and he realizes who she is when he brings out the light. So we've got mute, the mute, the nurse who's mute. We've got the father who's blind. And then um, she obviously isn't speaking. And then we see when she is going to actually do the act, it, the way that it's described is so well done. Um, Ovid says, the golden moon fled the sky. The moon, right? So that which shines light in the darkness. So now we've got everyone is blind. 
Black clouds covered the hidden stars. So even the immortal, the eternal, the things that call us higher, that's all of the associations with the stars, those things are hidden. Night lacked its fires. Fire was believed to, to move upwards. So it had this eternal quality to it, this heavenly quality to it. Also, of course, was used in prayers. So there's an association with a movement of the human towards the divine. And then he says, you, Icarus, so of course, like the man who was able to transcend humanity, and you, Erigone, his daughter, immortalized for your pious love for your father, hid your faces first. So now we have another instance of blindness, but it's because they cannot look on her shame. So I think okay. maybe there's something there for us to get something from. I was trying to search out, you said Icarus is, this mine's Icarus, I guess. That's and there's a couple different characters who have similar names, and his is his has to do with holy love. His story, yeah. So this is not the Icarus from Icarus and Daedalus. Right. This is a different hero, and he was murdered. If I remember the story correctly, and when his daughter saw Erigone saw his body, she killed herself out of love okay. for her father and then okay. the gods having mercy on them turned them both into constellations oh, so he's thank you. i totally got that wrong he's named in mine and she's called the virgin sign in mine which would be his daughter who killed herself um oh so is yeah. erigone virgo yes that's right oh my and Votis is icarius okay <laughs> thank you but this part struck me too. It kind of has this whole section underlined that basically all the heavenly lights leave, right? Like all yeah. the guiding lights of heaven, the moon, these two constellations are stars. Um, uh, it says the virgin sign in heaven, the first, the second name slides down the belt and from her station flies. Yeah, it did. I, I did find when I looked it up, he's got another name. It's like Bo Boetes is sometimes what that constellation is called. And it's like the, it's like one of the earliest constellations ever like identified and written about mm -hmm. as, a, as a position in the sky um it's midnight yeah oh, and so really oh perfect and it says at night oh, perfect. right it says at night the sable clouds involve in, involves the skies bold mira still pursues her black intent it was mm. like she stumbled thrice in omen of the event and so it's just it's so dark. She can't even walk to see, right? See to walk. And she's got the nurse there with her. And and then yet that darkness allows the sins to be more impudent, right? Like it's it should be an omen, but it's she's just taking it as cover of her of her sin and going forward. Um because it says even bashful sins are impudent by night, is what how mine reads. But it's such a yeah, great I section. You're right. It's so beautifully written, and and it is, I think, another point towards the gods or, or the divine arena looking down on this as something atrocious. Because, of course, the two constellations that represent the right relationship between a father and a daughter are the ones that flee. Mm. Oh, flee yeah. away from this scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... I think she struggles with it so much, but but Ovid gives us that it is wrong, like it is a crime, right? It is a crime not just against man's laws, but against the gods. 
and that when she, when she's brought into the light, she flees, and she just she not just because he's, I mean she flees obviously he pulls a sword so she flees, but she flees farther and farther and farther, um, and then is right back like you said Alec earlier to her other of the two choices right she's just ready to die but then calls out um, calls out for for some kind of uh, respite from that death but but not just because she doesn't want to die right. And that's what I think was so important that you, that you told you point out, Katarina, that there's this she doesn't want to offend the living or the dead anymore. She she wants to be free from being an offense, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting to me. Yeah, it's like at the beginning, she's so caught up in her own passions. Every time she moves towards sin, it says that she, that it's because of her passions, at least in my translation, that's the word that's used. And then after her sin, she realizes that she's not an individual and that she can't subjectify morality. Is that all right? Can I even say that? Um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> the word is used that way, but um, she realizes that there is an objective nature to morality and that she has to live according to it. Well, and I thought, you know, you, you, you have a deeper understanding than, of symbols than I do, but I wasn't very familiar with what the myrrh tree was actually like. You know, I mean, I know myrrh from, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and it's used in the continued use in the church and all those kind of things. And so I just, I, I just wanted to look mm-hmm. it up and it's, it's not a beautiful tree. Like when it's talked, at least in my translation, when it's talked about her possibly being chopped down and that simile refers to her as a pine, they're kind of small and thorny. And, um, but the, the myrrh itself, the, the, the sap, the oil, the resin has, has all of these medicinal properties. Um, it's mm-hmm. bitter, like you don't want to take it, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but she turns into something that is healing, which I think is interesting. Um, she doesn't just get to be a you know a beautiful tree because she's being protected. Like we have, though, there's other stories where people are turned into trees, and it tends to be something like a willow or an oak, or and it's kind of grand. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, it's because of that something they did good, or because they're fleeing from something bad and they're being saved. Um, but in this case, it's a she's been showing mercy from her own actions, but there's a, it, she's a tree that's, that's in service of, of healing others, which I thought was, I don't know. A, there was a lot to that. that Mercy comes with uh, even having to let go of yourself. Like you're talking about, not, you're not so subjective and individualized, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a communal thing, right. That she becomes. So. Yeah. I was thinking about that idea of the mer tree a lot too. And the myrrh is frequently used as a purifier, and it was also used to with mummies, actually. And um, like it's kind of in the space between the living and the dead. It was used for religious practices. So it's almost as if even even their understanding of myrrh, that it would be something that is used in prayer, something used to commune with the divine, but also to preserve dead bodies. Um, I mean, that I don't know how much Romans would have been using it for that practice, but it still would have been known as something that would heal mm. even just wounds. So it's like you mentioned, relating her back to the community, but also myrrh itself kind of stands then between the living and the dead. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this because that was something I was trying to trying to piece together. And I think what you guys are saying and just going through the story is making me see how how the two might relate 
and and kind of kind of what you're saying you know even in, in ancient egypt they were using an anointing for for dead bodies um in the hebrew old testament they were doing similar things mm-hmm. um but i was also thinking too of the you know saint mark in his gospel says that when the roman soldiers give christ something to drink that it was wine mingled with myrrh and mm. also in in more contemporary and, and even ancient christian practices myrrh is used as part of the anointing for a reception into the church or in times of sickness or at times for ordination and so what i think what you have is or what I, at least what I'm seeing, I wonder if this is right, is myrrh is that, like you said, that oil that is co-mingled with suffering. It's healing co-mingled with suffering, bringing those two together, life and death brought together. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's that kind of, that example, her life driven by suffering and resulting in this horrible, unnatural act results in this this oil that is kind of an interesting combination between life and death yeah and used in for the last super, two lines used for supernatural acts right goes from something that comes from unnatural acts to being supernatural acts go ahead Katarina. um i think if we look at the last two lines it kind of ties this together it's in my translation and i want to hear y'all's it says there is merit also in the tears and the myrrh that drips from the Bark keeps its mistress's name, and about it, no age will be silent. So, I mean, I've already mentioned this echo throughout of silence, how the sin isn't spoken. She's not saying things. The nurse isn't saying things. Um, But now, no age will be silent about Mira. Hmm. And in the tears, there is merit. So I think it is calling us to consider the relationship between all of these dualities that we've mentioned, life and death, shame and um, purity, um, and and how humans live in the midst of that. There is merit also in the tears. Yeah, my translation says, her tears are prized. This resin is called myrrh, its mistress's name, which time can never silence. Mm. It reminds me of the the story of Pontius Pilate and how he says after the Jews demand that they sacrifice Christ he says fine I'll wash my hands of this and then for centuries up till the present day we recite the nine creed Nicene Creed in which we say uh who was crucified by Pontius Pilate yes <laughs> and so yeah. you know he he said in the moment I my I will be forgotten mm. and we never forgot it and it's almost like that. She wants to be, she doesn't want to be remembered. She wants to li- have be neither amongst the dead nor among the living. Mm-hmm. But she kind of gets that. But not she kind of gets immortality. And we still, right, we just still remember her name. So that's interesting. That Those aren't the last lines of mine, the way this is laid out. Um, and I don't know if it just goes in because it starts moving into the next story. But it took me a second to find it. Um, it says, and though, uh, and though with outward shape she lost her sense, with bitter tears she wept her last offense, and still she weeps nor sheds her tears in vain, for still the precious drops her name retain. 
Uh, and then it goes into the, the the infant, like what happens with the infant after that, primarily. The the infant Adonis, that's in my version. It's in the next story. Alec, is that in the next story for you? So yeah, although I do get the the paragraph that you're talking about, Brandon, in mine as well. Yeah, yeah. The story of Adonis and Venus and Adonis is the next story, but it mm-hmm. talks about the infant a little bit before it jumps right. into that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But I think the paragraph you just read is just a translation of of my paragraph. I don't think it's an addition. Yeah, it just they just put the they just put the break. They put the story break somewhere differently. Someone did. Yeah. Which is interesting. Uh, good to know that 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 editor or translators have made that choice, I guess, and putting where they put the put the break between stories. Um, yeah, that's important. Yeah, yeah. But the, but you know this brings up something that you've brought up from the beginning of uh, looking at Ovid, Katarina, which was uh, about whether it's changing within its nature or nature's changing. And you mentioned it again at the beginning of this conversation. Could she have become something else, grass or a rose or whatever? So I'm wondering now that we've kind of walked through this, what are your thoughts on is she changed into something based on her nature or based on, or, you know, how, how would you parse that for from? From Mira. Mm-hmm. It seems very in keeping with her. The the bitterness of myrrh, the tears from the tree. It seems like she became who she truly was. The gods granted her almost, I don't know. Let's tell me what you guys think. Did the gods grant her a fullness of self? Because this is one thing I, I'm not sure if the gods are punishing her by turning her into a tree or whether it is an act of mercy. I mean, it hmm. says that they obviously answered her prayer. She asked for this and they gave it, but that doesn't mean it's merciful necessarily. Um, so if it is a fullness of her nature, then it's the natural consequence. And I think becoming our full selves can only be a merciful act. But I'm I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, it's that's tough for me, right? Because it's the like we from our perspective, you know, kind of Judeo-Christian perspective, becoming the fullness of your nature would be being more like Christ, the, the Imago Dei, right? Um and this doesn't seem to be that. It doesn't seem to be the full her, her best, the best version of human nature. It almost strikes me as a, as um, she becomes the, she, her nature follows her, her her final nature follows her decisions. So she's a product of the decisions, her her choices, um, which would almost, um, this is what we're spared, right? If in, (laughs) for Christians, that's what we're spared. We're spared being, becoming our worst decisions by, by grace, by, by whichever theological term you want <laughs> you want to use for it mm-hmm. but there's a there's a path for us away from our worst choices and toward the best the image that is within us um uh whether theosis sanctification you know mm-hmm. all of those whichever way you want to talk about it but um she it's like you said it's stated as a mercy to not live in shame or die in shame um but she but she transforms into something uh in that is in keeping with her pro- her poor, cho- poor choices to some extent alec what do you think about this 
Because I, I, I still, I still wonder if it is about her choices or if it is about her herself. Whether yeah, yeah. it's her desires, her passion, um, to what extent it's just, oh, she's acting like a tree, so she becomes a tree, or oh, her, she, she is a tree, so she's a tree. <laughs> right, and if and that leads you to a different set of question, right? Was she, was she condemned by nature to be? to be impious basically in her choices you know what i mean was yeah that circles back to that question of fate that, yeah, that's brought yeah. up at the very beginning in that first paragraph right right yeah it it's it's a tough question uh, i think i think that's right and going back to the beginning I, I we haven't don't have too much time to talk about this but i think it's really interesting that the story begins with Kiniras. Paphos bore you. Had he been childless, he'd have been classified among the blessed. Mm. And yet the story is about Mira. And we actually get very little of her father throughout, mm -hmm. except for in those two scenes. So it's, I bring that up as, as an interesting sort of thought about what the fates and the gods have to do to do with this. And it's sort of the age old question every time. Right. Did the fates make this happen or did the character right. himself do it? Right. And I don't think we know the answer exactly. I don't think the Greeks cared to have an exact answer. Yeah. I think it is kind of one and the same. So she she sealed her fate. I think the speech that we're given from her to me communicates that she had a choice to make. She knew what the different options were. She thought through all the processes and still chose to make the decision that she made. Um, and because of that, the gods flee, the lights flee, the, the moon flees, and all of them go. Mm -hmm. And I think at that moment, what we're seeing is she's been abandoned to her fate. Mm. But because she has this final prayers, Ovid says that, um, sorry, he says, a god heard her confession, final prayers have their own deities. And I suppose that's that's that kind of mercy that whomever answered her prayer was giving her. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I'm not sure the answer. Was she supposed to become a tree or did Ovid just need a good excuse for to write about the mercury? <laughs> I don't know. Yours says final prayers have their own deities. Mm -hmm. That is a really interesting way for that to read that line. Huh. Mine just says the prayers of penitence are never are never vain. I mean, but to have their own deities is an interesting way to, to phrase that. Huh. Yeah, I think I think that you're right. The the fates are always a sticky wicket, right? When we're talking about the Greeks and the Romans, um fate the fates, the gods, um, and how much agency and decision-making characters have. We went round and round on this when we did the Sophocles, uh, the Oedipus cycle, uh, mm -hmm. Matt and Andrea and I, mm -hmm. um, and had to change our minds with each, <laughs> with each play because different things, different factors came in. And so it is kind of an eternal question. Um, I think it's one that academics or, or the consensus of academia tends to have locked in on one way. I think that's kind of a narrow reading a lot of times of of these. So it's fun for us to kind of 
roll through it and think through it ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. But this one's this one's tough. This one's really tough to nail down this kind of did her nature change? Was it of her nature? Was it her nature plus her choices? You know, it's 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 a really interesting one. Um, and and so beautifully written. I mean, three different translations, and in all of them, it's it's beautifully written by Ovid, right? So I can only imagine mm -hmm. it. Those of you who can read Latin, I'm a little jealous, but I'm sure it's amazing. Can we um, look at the first paragraph now that yeah. we're finished through the whole Definitely. story? Can we look at the first paragraph again? Um, I can read it in my translation, although I think, Alec, I think yours is better than mine. Can you read it in yours? Yeah, absolutely. Paphos bore Keniras. Had he been childless, he'd have been classified among the blessed. Dread things I'll sing, fathers and daughters leave. Or if you want my songs to soothe your minds, don't trust my tale or think this deed was done. Or if you trust it, trust the deed was punished. If nature does let such misdeeds appear, then I applaud the land of Thrace, my region, far being far from realms that breed such evil. Let the Pancaean land be rich in balsam, cinnamon and perfume. Let it bear incense seeping from wood and sundry blooms, as long as it keeps myrrh. That new tree was too costly. Cupid denies his arrows harm Junira, and he defends his torches from that charge. One of the triple sisters blasted you with Stygian flames or swollen snakes. It's wrong to hate one's father, but such love is worse. Thanks. I love that there at the end, when how we were talking about maybe there's redemption in her being myrrh, but he's saying, you know what, keep your myrrh. This price isn't worth it. It's it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I don't want this to be a Thracian tale. It's not worth it. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I think they're, it's Cyprus, right? Is where if I looked it up, right? Is where they are. So it's a unidentified island somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Very you should start the, the podcast with that line. Uh, fathers and daughters keep away. Or if yes. your mind takes pleasure in my song, put no faith in this story of mine and imagine it did not happen. <laughs> what a great right. way to start a story. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Daughters and fathers. Believe in the punishment. Yeah. Yeah. So it's he's so telling good. us right there at the beginning, like, if you're going to listen to this story, if you're going to stick around and hear the whole thing out, then I want you to believe in the consequences of her actions. Mm -hmm. Like, if that's one thing you take away, take away that. Yeah, he, he does. He, right at the very beginning. At least in my transition, it calls it punish. Believe the punishment, right? So there, it, mm -hmm. it is a consequence of punishment, even if it's a merciful one. It's a, it's there's a, it's a punishable offense. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are no shortage of questions <laughs> on this particular story. Um, well, in Ovid in general, um, do y'all either y'all have a final part, or do y'all feel? Parting shot, are you good with just kind of looking back at the beginning there? They're both nodding their heads at me. So as in we're good with the beginning. So um, like I said, there there are so many questions that could come from this. I hope listeners, you'll send them in to us. If there's things we didn't cover, things you wanted us to discuss about this one, um, please fire those off to us um, at podcast at searchinginstitute.org. Um, and thank you for pulling the book down from the shelf, dusting it off and cracking it open to join us for this episode of Overview Classics. Uh, join us next week when we will uh, drop back into Ovid um, 
And be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.